Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus, chapter 34. Let's pray together. Father, it is a joy to sing about your mercy and your faithfulness and your love. It is a joy to gather together to do this as your people that have been redeemed by the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is our desire this morning that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we as a church would reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in every way, and that through the time together, both your people and those who are not yet your people would be challenged and changed by your glory. And if there are some among us that do not know Jesus as their Savior, we pray that even today you might open their eyes to realize their need and your supply, that you will willingly forgive and provide forgiveness and redemption, salvation, that they would be right with you, having a right standing and eternal place with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Why is it so important to know who God is? The Bible makes that very clear through a very succinct statement that Jesus himself has made. And I'll share that with you. In John 17, 3, Jesus said this, This is eternal life, that they, people, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, Jesus said that it is eternal life to know God and to know Jesus. We have to know who God is and know who Jesus is to have that place of eternal life. Because in knowing God, we will recognize Him to be holy, and when we know God, we'll see ourselves to be anything but holy and recognize our need to turn from our sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. And every time we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ, everyone that does that, God will always provide for them eternal salvation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who comes to me will will always be embraced and no one cast aside. That's the idea that Jesus conveys. Turn from your sin, turn to Christ. Knowing Jesus, knowing God is essential, and so we are launching into a study on knowing God as he has revealed himself. Last week, uh, we, learned, uh, we learned this. We learn about God by what he has made. You see the things he's done with his hands. We learn about God by what he has done in our lives. We learn about God by the people that he has redeemed, the work that he's doing constantly in us. But most importantly... We learn about God by what he has said about himself in the pages of Scripture. God, a concept of God, is not subjective. Now, people's conception of God is subjective, but the very understanding of God is not subjective. In other words, he's not open to our interpretation. We can't say, well, my God is a God of... My God is a God of... No, God declares for us who he is. That is objective truth. The truth resides here. You either deny it to your great peril, or you embrace him and the truth that he has revealed about himself to your great delight and redemption. It's beautiful. 
God has revealed Himself in the pages of Scripture. We want to continue our study of this passage in Exodus. It is a passage in which God introduces Himself in a particular way, and it's a way that is repeated numerous times throughout the Old Testament text. So our first concept this morning is that God repeatedly introduces Himself. We have it here in Exodus 34. Take a look with me at verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. So who's proclaiming right now? The Lord is. So God is introducing himself, and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God introducing himself to Moses. And what is so fascinating is that this is the basis of so many repetitions of God introducing himself in the pages of Scripture. Now, we're going to look at a number of texts now, and I'm going to ask you to work with me, turning to these passages. We're going to read them. And the idea that I want for us to understand is there are going to be human penmen that are writing, and they're writing, conveying this very same concept about who God is, but remember this about Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's from 2, Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Inspiration is thea, God. Neustos, when we say it together, we say theopneustos, but it's theos, neustos. It's God-breathed. God-breathed. Every word of God, every written word that God has conveyed for us comes from God. And so while we may see Moses a number of times, or David a number of times, or one of the prophets a number of times, introducing us to God, really, we have to understand that it is God introducing ourselves, uh, himself to us in all of these texts. So what we want to notice in, in short order during this first concept is this. God repeats this in his word, in the law, in the Psalms, and in the prophets, okay? So we're going to do a little bit of work. You ready for this? First of all, Numbers 14. In Numbers 14, the context is that Moses is interceding on behalf of the people because of their rebellion against the Lord. And in this recitation and in this pleading, what we have here is Moses, again, reiterating this concept that God has conveyed to us in Exodus 34. So Numbers 14, verses 18 and 19. We'll start in verse 17 for just a slight bit of context. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger 
and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so in his plea for the people, in his plea for forgiveness, he goes directly to the way that God introduces himself. That's vitally important for us. When you go to your Father in heaven to, to plea for forgiveness or to deal with an issue, you're going not based upon some concept that some guy taught you sometime. You're going based upon how God has told you who he is. Take a look, please, now at Deuteronomy chapter 5. That's the next book to your right, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're noticing that this concept of the way God introduces himself is reiterated in the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses reiterates the commandments to the people and reminds the people of everything that was going on when those ten commandments came, the, the mountain and, the, and the, the quaking and all of these things. He's reiterating this and he reminds the people of how God introduced himself. Take a look at verses 6 through 10. Deuteronomy 5, 6 and following. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am, excuse me, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But, but, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so we have it ingrained right into this uh, uh, recollection of the Ten Commandments. Take a look at chapter 7 now, Deuteronomy 7. He's preparing the people to go into the land of promise. He's reminding them of their special place in God's plans. And he grounds their understanding of, of what they're about to do in the very character and nature of God, how he introduced himself. So Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and keeps the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's the reason that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and he keeps his commandments to a thousand generations, and he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And so he's, he's saying, as you, as you get ready to go into this land of promise, remember who it is that has redeemed you, remember his care for you, and remember who he, how he has introduced himself to you. This is an important thing. We live our lives based upon how God has told us who he is. 
Not what we have gathered from our experience. Experience may reiterate what we know from the scriptures, and that's great. But where our experience re, um, uh, may have a feeling of contradiction, we don't say, well, since my experience is different than what God says, God is wrong and my experience is right. If experience were the dominant um, concept of how we determine truth, guess what? There would be no such thing as truth because your experience is different than the person to your right, left, front, and back. Experience does not determine truth. Experience helps us to understand how we see truth. It is much different. So in the, in the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, God brings this concept of himself into many contexts. Now, I want for us to see it in the Psalms. Take a look, please, at Psalm 86. There are other portions of Scripture aside from the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. There's also historical elements in, in say, Second Chronicles. We, we see it. We'll see that going forward in the future in our study. But all these portions of Scripture, all the different genres of Scripture, God is using this introduction of himself as the basis of how we remember and understand him. In Psalm 86, David, he's pleading for God's help. And in the midst of this plea for God's help, he grounds his prayer in the soil of God's character. It was the basis of his thinking and understanding that God would deliver him. So Psalm 86, look at verses 14 through 17. O Lord, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because of you, Lord. Have, uh, because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So he grounds his plea for help and his confidence of that help in who God is. And it comes right back to Exodus 34. Take a look now at Psalm 103, as David is recounting the benefits of God, he talks about how God forgives sin, but in declaring God's nature, he lets us know that the, his understanding of God comes right back to this introduction that God gave to Moses back in Exodus 34. Take a look at Psalm 103 and verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. He goes on there, but now jump down to verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is, what does he say? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions. 
from us. This is glorious. So he, he takes that Exodus passage as part of his recounting of God's benefits. And then he broadens out a couple of concepts. The, the greatness and steadfast love of God reaching to the heavens. And the mercy of God being as far as the east is from the west. And that forgiveness that comes our way. It's beautiful. It's the basis of his worshiping God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I, I might say to you, that passage is important. Are you convinced yet? I, I suppose you are. If you're a Bible believer, you're already convinced that it's an important passage, but we're not done yet. Take a look at Psalm 111, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord within my heart, or with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in, him, in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Just a little snippet of it, but recited here. Take a look now at Psalm 145. Psalm 145. We read this as our responsive reading, verses 3 through 10. We'll read it one more time for the morning. David, again, is the penman, and he's, he's worshiping God. He is declaring God's glory. He is, he is praising God. And he says in verse 3, all the way down to verse 10, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. The psalmists... Bring this to the forefront. Now take a look at some of the prophets. Take a look at Joel chapter 2 with me, please. Joel chapter 2. Joel uses Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the way God has introduced himself, as the basis of his call to repentance. So he's using it with the people of Israel, those that are supposed to be God's chosen ones, his, his called out people, and he is using Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that they would have known about God to call them to repentance. Joel chapter 2, please. Take a look at verses 12 through 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts. And not your garments. You know what that means? Oh, I'm so upset. I'm so upset. I'm going to rip my clothes. Well, that's an outward sign that you're upset about what's going on. It's, a, it's an outward sign of moving toward repentance. And God says, I don't really care about whether your clothes are torn or not. It doesn't do anything for me. Let's do something deeper. Let's deal with your heart of hearts. Let's deal with your inner man. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For, why? He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows 
whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He says, turn, 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 because God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who he is. It's the basis of a call to repentance. I think for them, and I know also for us, it's a basis to repent. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you've been struggling with. I don't know what's been grabbing your attention, pulling you away. I can tell you this, though. Know who God is. Turn. None of this stuff out here, none of this is going to fix your problems. Ah, turn. Turn to him. He will, is abundant in his grace. He is abundant in his mercy. He will forgive and he will grant favor. He will help you, aid you, carry you along, give you the wisdom you need, give you the strength you need. He may not remove all your problems. That's not the point. The point is not, oh, if you turn to God, all of your problems will suddenly be gone. No. You're going to have all the same problems. He might you know, change things a little bit, but you may have all the same problems. But there's a difference about going through problems by yourself in your own resources that never works out and going through problems being carried along by the one who created heaven and earth and all that in them is. Go through your life with him, controlling your life and giving you grace. There's, this is the basis of repentance. Now look at Jonah, please. Jonah. Here's Jonah beefing. <laughs> beefing about the Lord. Beefing about what God was going to do. He's complaining that, Lord, I, the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place is because I know what kind of a of a God you are. I don't like these people. These Ninevites are horrible humans. I knew you'd be merciful. That's why I didn't want to go. And this is how he, it's grounded, his concept of complaining to God about the repentance of the Ninevites is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Listen to what he says in Jonah 4, verses 1 and 2. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Now, he's pretty bitter and broken, and this is not good. However, his concept, his concept comes back from Exodus 34. And so also does the concept in Nahum. Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. Take a look at Nahum chapter 1. So, we can't understand every reason why God does what he does, but we can we have some conception, right? That we have opinions and we see what God says. God relented from destroying Nineveh. He wanted to demonstrate his mercy and grace. There comes a point, there comes a point when a people, their sin arises to a certain level and then God says, okay, that, that's it. Now judgment's coming. We're going to come to that in just a moment. We're going to read Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where God conveys that Nineveh will now be judged because their sin reached a certain level. Look at what it says. Verse 1 of Nahum 1. 
an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. We can't dive into this terribly deeply. But you see Exodus 34 in here? Exodus 34, where God introduces himself, is how God says, I'm coming, Nineveh, and, and my judgment is just. I've already told the world who I am. I've already told the world who I am. And so we do have to have a, a, a slight pause because you know, you're looking at God now conveying a different element of his of his character than the, the mercy and grace and love that everyone want, is so happy to talk about. He's talking about by no means clearing the guilty. There comes a point among a people where God says, I, 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 my long-suffering has been um, fulfilled. My patience with certain activities has come to its completion. It's not that God runs out of long-suffering. It's that it completes. There's a difference between the two. It's not like, oh, I've held my anger all this time, and now I can hold it no longer. It's not Popeye the Sailor Man. It's, it's been filled. And in his long-suffering, when it's fulfilled, there are some other attributes of God that are demonstrated. And I'll remind you of this with just a few Scripture passages, and we're going to move on. God is promising to Abraham and his descendants a land. You remember that in Genesis 12, etc.? And a reiteration of that comes in chapter 15. And he says, there's a, a day coming that I will let you have this land. But listen to what he, how, he, how he says it in chapter 15 of Genesis and verse 16. They shall come back, the people shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why not now, Lord? Here's the reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You know what that means? I will give them some more time to fill up the cup of their iniquity. And when their cup comes to its full, then my just judgment will come. Jesus mentioned it this way in Matthew 23, 32. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. There comes a point where the sin reaches a certain level. And so God says, okay, my long-suffering has been completed. And now my judgment will arrive. He does it in Amos as well, and he does it very interestingly. If you want to read Amos chapters 1 and 2 later, it'll it'd be, um, it'd at least fill this concept out for you. God speaks through Amos. It's almost like this courtroom setting, and he goes through these people groups all around the people of Israel, people that have harmed his people. And he says, with this same formula, with for three transgressions of, name the, name the people, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment of this people. He goes and all around them, and so like the, the people are, are hearing this message, and they're like, yeah, get, get them. Yeah, they've been hurting us. They've been, they've, been, they've been suppressing us, oppressing us. They've been causing problems. Yeah, get them, get them, get them. All around. And then, and then it comes for, this, this was written to the southern tribes, and they hated the northern tribes. 
You come to the northern tribes, and God says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke my, my judgment on Israel. And they're kind of like, hmm, it's a little uncomfortable, but I don't like them anyway. So, yeah, get them, but they're your people. So there's, I think, some, some mixed emotions. Then you get to verse 4 of chapter 2, and it says this, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So even against God's people, this generic grouping of people, not everyone in that grouping are regenerated people, people that know Jesus Christ or know God uh, in his saving ways, but they're amongst that community. And God says, because of your sin, I'm going to judge. So that was a little bit of a side trail coming back to Nahum. We're reading Nahum, and God says, I'm bringing my judgment, I'm bringing my judgment. And what's the reason? Well, in Jonah, God was relenting that judgment and causing them to turn to himself. But in Nahum, there's judgment coming. Why is this? Because there's a, there's a measure of sin that reaches the top of the cup and it starts to spill over and God's judgment comes. But even in the discussion of God's judging the people of Nineveh in Nahum, God grounds it in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God introduced himself not only as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in steadfast love, it's also and by no means clears the guilty. We're going to come to that in coming weeks. The question, it's a logical question. You're saying, well, he's merciful but doesn't clear the guilty. Well, how does that work? Well, there's a way that a person has their guilt removed. Have you, are you one of those? Are you one of those who has had your guilt removed? Oh, thank you, Lord. I, I have been a beneficiary of God's mercy and grace, not because I'm good, that would not be what mercy and grace brings. I am a beneficiary of God's mercy and grace, not because I'm a pastor or faithful to my wife or love my children. I am a beneficiary of mercy and grace because God, in his great love for me, revealed to me that my sin has a just judgment. <laughs> and I don't want that. So I'm willing to turn from this because it's not going to solve any of my problems and turn to Jesus who perfectly fulfilled every demand of the law in my stead, who mercifully forgives all of my sin and grants me all of the righteousness that I need to have a good standing, right standing before God. God doesn't clear the guilty, but he makes, but he makes guilty people free from guilt. I hope you're one of those that has received forgiveness and grace to where you are no longer condemned by your, the guilt of your sin because it's been attributed to Jesus Christ. God, in his declaring his willingness to forgive, cites how he introduced himself to Moses. And God, in his willingness to judge, cites his introduction of himself to Moses. God gives us a very balanced view of himself, and it's a view that's reiterated throughout the text of Scripture. God also, in this introduction, gives himself a personal name. 
It says, the Lord passed before him and declared. Remember that? The Lord passed before him and declared. He said, the Lord, the Lord, and then he goes on. But the Lord declared two times his own name, the Lord, the Lord. And it's the word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the consonants that are uh, equivalent to it. Um, The Bible contains many names about God, one of which is Elohim, used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament text. According to one dictionary, Elohim is used to express God's faithfulness in regard to the covenant and the promises and the blessings involved in it. God uses the name El Elyon in Genesis 14 when, when Melchizedek uh, is, is encountering Abraham. And Melchizedek says, the, uh, God Most High. I'm worshiping God Most High. That's El Elyon. And then uh, we're introduced to God this way as El Shaddai, God Almighty. You can see that in Genesis 17.1 where The Bible says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So God is the sovereign ruler over all. He's introduced to us as El Olam, the eternal one. God transcends all temporal limits. We're introduced to God as El Gibor in Isaiah 9.6. The mighty God. The mighty God. We're introduced to God as El Roi. It's a tough, tough one to say. El Roi. That is uh, the one who sees, the God who sees, and the implication, the God who knows. This designation of God is used in Genesis chapter 16 by Hagar. Hagar. Listen to what, what that text says. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. That deserves some meditation, folks. Hagar. Hagar is the handmaiden of Abraham's wife. She's running. and, And God lets her know. I'm not forgetting you. I haven't forgotten you. And she, this simple servant, says, you're a God who sees. Think about that later on today when you're going about your business. We have a God who sees. The word Yahweh contained back in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, is a four-letter word, and I've been waiting for like years to use this. It's the ineffable tetragrammaton. It's the unspeakable four-letter word. It's used over 5,300 times in the Old Testament. Most frequent name of God, and it's his most personal name. Take a look with me, please, at Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, the first portion of the the chapter, there's a vision of a valley of dry bones. Then there's an object lesson concerning some sticks. Uh, And then he interprets this this, uh, vision of the sticks or the illustration of the sticks in verses 18 and following. Listen to what he says. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Taking the two sticks and making them one. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is the 
in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with them, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hands before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with the idols or with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But... I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall, have, uh, they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my uh, statutes. I mean, rules and statutes, you see that. Verse 25, they shall dwell in the land that I, give, that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived, they and their children, and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my king, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary, listen, I will set my sanctuary, that's where I dwell, in their midst. How long? Forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen to what verse 28 says. Then the nations will know that I am the... What does it say? Now that, wherever you see the all caps, Lord, that's where Hebrew Yahweh is. The people all around you will know that I am Yahweh, your personal, your God, the God who dwells with you when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. The Lord who sanctifies Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. At the end of Ezekiel, in chapter 48 and verse 35, it says that the name of the city from that time on shall be, listen, the Lord is where? 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 Who? Is there? Where? With his people. And this gives us a little bit of a vision toward Revelation 21. I will dwell with my people. They will be my people. I will be their God. This is Yahweh. The one who dwells with his people. And the way he will be known throughout all of eternity, according to two passages in Jeremiah, it's almost the exact same rendering. Jeremiah 23, 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he, God, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Yahweh Tzidkenu. Righteousness. The righteous God, the Lord who is our righteousness. Jehovah Tzidkenu. And the same thing in Jeremiah 33, 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
the name that God chooses to to have all throughout all of eternity as he dwells among his people, the ones he has sanctified, is Yahweh. And this is how he introduces himself to Moses. And now remember the setting. Moses has brought, brought the people out by God's grace. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've celebrated. They, they've, they've been given instructions about God's law and, and the ways to live. Then the, Moses is called up the mountain and in the process of that, the, the people sin as they, they, they think, well, I don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. So they, 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 they demand a, a, an idol to be made by Aaron. Aaron foolishly says, well, I don't know how this happened. I threw the, the, the gold into the fire and this calf popped out. I don't, I don't know how that happened. Even though the text tells us that he formed the thing. God says, that, that's it. Cup's full. Moses said, no, cup's not full. You promised. This is a looking world. You promised, and people are watching. God says, well, okay, I'll send you in, but I'm not going. Lord, we can't go without you. Okay, I'll go. Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Well, you can't see my face, but I'll give you a little glimpse. And the Lord passes before him. And he passes before me. He says, the Lord... The Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for generations. The Lord calls himself by his personal name. It reveals his faithfulness. It reveals his personal nature. It reveals his redeeming nature. And it reveals his enduring nature. This is the name he'll be known throughout all of eternity. The Lord, our righteousness. Not just the Lord, the righteous one, but the Lord, our righteousness. And this goes toward his merciful character. God describes himself as merciful. We do not have time to, to talk about it. But we will have time to meditate on it because the table of the Lord is all about God's mercy. None of us, none of us has a right to the table of the Lord of our own accord. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that demanded the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I am desperate, as are you, for God's mercy. I'm thankful that I have received that mercy, and that is an unchanging circumstance. Have you come to the place in your life that you've turned from your sin, you recognize your sin was a demonstration of who you are, not just an act that you did? A demonstration of who you are. And that that demonstration of who you are demands eternal punishment but God has called us to turn from it and turn to him to receive forgiveness of that of which I am and which I have done. Turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. If you have turned to Jesus for your salvation, you've already experienced the mercy that God describes himself to be. I am a God merciful. You've already experienced that mercy. 